from James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well, good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. It's a little bit shorter of a passage, so I don't know. Maybe it'll be a shorter sermon too. I'm not sure. We'll see what happens. Well, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. I title this message, Am I Worthy of Jesus? Which might seem strange because if you look down, you're going to see it says, you see that it's about children. Let the little children come to Jesus. And, and what that has to be, and I think as we talked about a couple weeks ago, but we can remind again is, just want to remember as we jump into this passage, what children are looked like in this particular culture that we're reading is a lot different than what Western culture thinks of children. Western culture has a very fond, sentimental view of children, uh, perhaps because we have been pretty Christianized. But this Middle Eastern culture at this particular time doesn't have that kind of view of children. Children are seen as kind of a, a, a necessary nuisance, just something that you kind of put up with until they get old enough to do some work and to help with uh, things around life. And, and particularly in a place where life is really hard, children just make it more difficult. They're not seen as particularly valuable they're not really seen as being worthy. And so as we look how Jesus interacts with these children here in this passage, we get to question and see how he deals with worthiness. What makes him worthy? What makes these kids worthy? And it should make us ask, am I worthy of Jesus? And as we ask that question, we know this, that, that it's a trick question. It's a trick question to ask, am I worthy of Jesus? Because the answer is no and yes. Are you worthy of Jesus all on your own? Of course not. Jesus is the supreme ruler of the entire universe. He is perfect and without sin. He is beyond any of us. And yet, that God in Jesus, particularly in the Son, came and dwelt among us, sinful people who don't deserve him. And he made a way that we might have a relationship with him and the Father, with this triune, amazing God. Even though we are so unworthy, he has made us worthy. And so am I worthy of Jesus? If you are in Jesus, 
If you believe in him, believe on his name, then yeah, you're worthy of Jesus. And so it's a trick question. It's this both and, no and yes. And that's what we want to see is these little children come and the culture around them, the world around them sees them as being totally unworthy, particularly unworthy of being next to Jesus. And yet Jesus wants them to come and he says that the kingdom belongs to such as these and he ultimately makes them worthy, chatterbox and all. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at these four verses. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. I'll read them for us. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. The disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Well, what we want to see is we want to talk about worthiness. And the first thing we want to see this morning is we need to remember what makes us worthy. Like I said, are we worthy? Well, no, but also, yes. We need to remember what makes us worthy because what I want to argue is that the disciples in this moment have forgotten what has made them worthy as they keep these children away from Jesus. The language is intentionally pretty vague about these they. It, it doesn't tell us who the they are. It just says they were bringing children to Jesus. We might guess that it, maybe it's their parents, these parents who just desperately long to see this guy who's been healing people and doing amazing things and saying, oh, you like, please, will you just touch my child? Will you bless my child? And maybe it's their children. Maybe it's the crowds that have just been following. They're just like, I don't know, throw my baby and see what happens. You know, just kind of this thing that's happening and they're bringing him before But this they, they seem to have a better indication and a better pulse on the heart of Jesus than his own disciples do. Because when the disciples see that they're bringing these little children to Jesus, their response, their gutter response is, don't do that. Get out of here. Who are you to think to bring these little worthless children to Jesus? Don't you know who he is? And they rebuke them. We see that Jesus' response to this is really interesting. It says, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. This is the only place in all of the New Testament where that word is used of Jesus. That word indignant gets used of Pharisees when Jesus heals people on the Sabbath day. They become indignant because Jesus heals this, with this man who has a withered hand on the Sabbath. It gets used of the disciples later in the Gospel of Mark. When a woman, in an act of worship, takes her most valuable perfume and she puts it on the feet of Jesus and she begins to worship him and and unknowingly anoints his body for burial and this beautiful, amazing thing happens and the disciples become indignant saying, what a waste of this valuable perfume. Shouldn't she have sold it and gave it to the poor? Now we know that Judas is the one who said that and that Judas was stealing money from that treasure box so he wasn't really thinking about the poor. He was just being a liar. And that's what we see. And what's so interesting is so whether they're Pharisees or whether they're disciples, indignation in the heart of a human is when these unworthy people, whether it's this man with a withered hand or this woman that people would have pushed aside comes and breaks this incredibly valuable thing of perfume and puts it on Jesus, that makes them indignant. It makes them angry. It frustrates them. But Jesus is the total opposite. What makes Jesus indignant? What makes Jesus really, really mad? It's when his own disciples 
look to these people and say, you're not worthy of the touch of Jesus. And that makes Jesus indignant and makes him really angry. And he says to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. He basically says the same thing twice. It's, an, it's a way uh, in, in, that, in the language because they don't have exclamation points like we do. That's how you can put an exclamation point on your saying is you say the same thing twice. Mark records, let them come to me. Do not hinder them. He's commanding them, what are you doing? Don't you see these people, these unworthy children, they need to come to me. And it's so interesting to me that we look at this text and this unnamed group of people have a better pulse on the heart of Jesus than his own disciples do. There's something about these disciples somewhere along the line, and we've been seeing this unfold in Mark chapter nine, right? They've kind of gotten a little too big for their britches. They've started to think a little too highly of themselves. Look how awesome we are. We're traveling around with Jesus. We're like his, 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 we're his guys. And they've forgotten what has made them that to begin with. They've forgotten that they were unworthy and that Jesus made them worthy. They failed to remember what's made them worthy in the first place. In Luke's gospel in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, it says this, and it talks about the call of, of the first disciples. So on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gerizet, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Now I just want to pause here. They're not even good fishermen. They have been fishing all night long and they have caught nothing. Jesus doesn't get ready to call them to be his disciples and tell them, I'll make you fishers men because he's like, whoa, those guys know what they're doing. They're really, really competent. They're really good at their job. So come follow me and I'll make you a really good fisher of men. They don't catch anything. They're not even any good at it. And when they had done this, verse six, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And when they came and filled both of the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, listen to what Peter says here, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. For from now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their nets to the land, they left everything and followed them. Do you hear that there in verse 8? Simon sees Jesus in all his glory, sees Jesus for who he's supposed to be, and Simon's response is, he falls down at the feet of Jesus on his knees and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And what I want to know, what we should all want to know, is where in the world is that guy come Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16? Where's the man who when he saw Jesus falls to his knees and says, I'm just not even worthy of you. And Jesus looks at that, that humility and says, come follow me. Now you get it. You're not worthy of me. That's right. Now come follow me. I'm gonna make you worthy. But when these children start to come and they come to be touched by Jesus, his response, 
Peter and the other disciples is to rebuke the people and say, get these kids out of here. See, the reality is, is they've begun to think of themselves a little too highly. They've begun to think, well, we're really, really great. We've got something. And if, and if these kids start coming around, they're going to make Jesus not look as good. And that means I'm not going to look as good. So get these kids out of here. If we're honest, I think sometimes we can have that kind of view of ourselves. We, we remember, we forget what happened when Jesus first called us to be his disciples, when we were first overcome by the reality of our sin, when we first saw, I'm not worthy of this, and yet you died for me. This is amazing. But life starts to get on. Maybe we start to tidy up a bit. Life starts to look a little better, and we start to think, man, Jesus is so lucky I'm on his team. I am like the Tom Brady of Christians. I'm the Albert Einstein of Christian thinkers, the Jeff Bezos of Christian financiers. Man, I'm not just the bee's knees, I'm the elbows too, right? We're everything that we want to be. All right, maybe you don't think that. Maybe it's not quite that audacious, not quite that prideful. But if we're all honest, sometimes we look at that. Sometimes we look at other people hurting and distressed or we talk about evangelism and you think to yourself, you know who'd make a really good Christian? And the people we share the gospel with are people who just kind of look like us, maybe live like us, people that we think, man, wouldn't it be really good to have them on our team? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's the unworthy that I want. It's the sick that need the physician. That's who we want to go to. That's who we want to run to. These people that are marginalized, forgotten, pushed off to the side. These little children that nobody else really wants. They're just this necessary nuisance of life. That's who Jesus is saying, let them come to me. Do not hinder them. See, what we need to see from this text applied to our lives is really just a little bit of knowledge is this, is that Jesus loves the unworthy. That's who his heart is drawn to, is those who are unworthy of him, these little children that bring nothing to the table. Jesus saying, let them come to me. Do not hinder them. And he takes it a step further and says that the kingdom itself belongs to such as these. Which brings us to our second point here, that the kingdom belongs to the unworthy. Now, like I've said, these children are not viewed very highly in this culture. They're not seen like we see them now. You know, we look at kids and we're like laughing because Vera's over here putting her hand up in the air and all this fun stuff. Western culture is is really, we're kind of soft. We're a squishy kind of people. And again, I, I would... I would argue, uh, as an apologist, someone who would say, I would say, who was argue for God. Yeah, that's because our culture is founded upon a lot of Christian values. We love and value children because even though our culture may be in the moment trying to push away Christ, the teachings of Christ have influenced our culture deeper than we really want to admit. We have this natural longing and desire for children because God says that everybody is creating the image of God no matter what they bring to the table. And that's what we see, and we want to see that we are part of that. But this culture isn't like that. Jesus isn't throwing down these teachings yet. And so he's got to bring them along and help them see that. And children are just not seen as something that are a blessing. They're just kind of, they're just really inconvenient. But Jesus looks at these unworthy children, and he says, For t- let the children come to me, do not hinder them. Right there at the end of verse 14, it says, For to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That first phrase there, the kingdom, it belongs to these children. That, that's, a, that's, that's a weird thing to say. That's a weird thing to say. Who do kingdoms belong to? Kings. Who do kingdoms belong to? The powerful. That's who kingdoms belong to. And here you have Jesus. He's saying, no, 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 no. My kingdom belongs to the unpowerful. My kingdom belongs to children like this. That's who my kingdom belongs to. What an amazing thing. He goes on further. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That we have to be like these children in some kind of way if we ever want to be a part of the kingdom of God. Now I think there's some misconceptions that come around. What does it mean to have faith like a child? And the two misconceptions I want to push against are, is one, we think innocence, or two, we think uh, just kind of a blind faith or what I would call like naive <laughs> And I would actually say God's not calling us to any of those things. One thing, let me tell you this. Kids are not innocent. They're not. We all look at Vera. She looks really, really cute. Yesterday, taking her noodles, looking me dead in the eye. Do not drop that on the floor, Vera. Do not drop that on the floor. (laughs) She drops it and she laughs right in my face. They're not innocent. They're not. If you've been around kids at all, you know that's like the number one thing. They're not as innocent. It doesn't take long and they start lying to you. Like really early. Like they'll just, did did you get into the cookie jar? No. Why are there crumbs all over the place? I don't know. You got in the cookie jar. You're bad at this. You're not even good at lying, right? This is what they are. Like they're they're not innocent. God is not saying like, come to me because you're really, really innocent. And that's really good news for me and you because if we're, on, we're not innocent either. We have our own mess and our own baggage. We're a sinful people. And if Jesus is saying, the only people who can enter my kingdom are innocent people, I can't enter the kingdom and neither can you. It's not for innocent people. It's for people who know they're messed up. It's people who know that they've sinned. They're people who know that they failed God. So certainly not innocence. I would argue it's not naive, being naive is either. Just a blind, like, yeah, it's true. You can get kids to believe like anything. I mean, they believe some really wild, crazy stuff because they're kids and they'll just do what you tell them to. But believe it or not, I think God constantly calls us to know our faith, to know it really well, to ask hard questions. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. I think a lot of times because we tell people like you just have to blindly accept everything by faith all the time, we don't ask our pastors, we don't ask mature Christians in our life the things that we're really struggling with because oh, if they know that I'm struggling, then they'll tell me that my faith isn't good enough. And we want to say, listen, no, 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 Jesus is for the doubters too. Jesus is for the weak. Jesus, you have questions, ask them. Let's work through that together. Let's be a part, let's, let's like come to me, come to your community group leaders, come to, to these people who are leading things. That are, like, we want to know, we want to know your difficulties, we want to know your struggles, because we can help you. God isn't calling you to a blind faith, he's calling you to a faith that does, in fact, have some meaningful weight to it. That's got a firm foundation. There are good reasons to be a Christian, it's not just a weird blind faith. So then what is it? What does it mean to have a childlike faith? And I want to suggest this. is The word that you should latch onto to think is this is dependence. In Luke's account of this story, he actually calls these kids babes. He says that they're like really young children. The word that Mark and Matthew use tell us at the very least they're prepubescent. 
They're young kids. They can't take care of themselves. Again, in a harsh, difficult culture, these prepubescent children, they don't have the strength to care for themselves, to feed themselves, to find shelter for themselves. They're massively, totally dependent upon their parents. And they're certainly dependent upon Jesus. They're not bringing anything to the table What do they need? They need his touch. They need his blessing. They need him to lay their hands on them. They don't bring anything. They're totally and completely dependent. And that's what God is calling us to be. You have to be dependent. I have three kids, three years and down, as you guys know. And let me tell you, they're totally dependent. If Brittany and I decided to leave the house tomorrow and just leave the doors inside of our house open, stairs would become a place to crack your skull. Rock salt from the shoes of guests is poison. The blinds, a noose. A well-intentioned hands of the clumsy older brother becomes a source of a concussion. And the innocent game of hide-and-go-seek turns into an accidentally smothering of an infant under a blanket because he's convinced they want to be under the blanket. Do not put the blanket on your brother. Right? That's a constant conversation I'm having. The toilet becomes a place of drowning and nastiness because if you leave the door open for some reason, that little girl would just beeline and crawl right to it. They're totally dependent. This is like the closest in my life I'll ever be to a superhero is having three young children. I save someone's life every day. That's what it means. I think it means to literally look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I would die without you. I am so desperate for you. I am so needy for you. I am like the deer who pants for water. Oh, my soul, it longs for you. Jesus, I need you so badly. I'm so desperate for Christ. If you went away from me, I would, I, I would just like wither up and die without you. I desperately need Jesus. To come to Jesus in the way that he's saying to come, he's saying you're coming recognizing your neediness, recognizing your dependency. That's what we apply. We must recognize our dependence upon God. See, without God, we, we, we cannot save ourselves. You're not innocent and neither am I. But oh, what the glorious news the gospel brings to us that he has done the saving work for us. And he is saying, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I'm gentle, I'm lonely at heart. So come to him. And he's saying to these little children, let these little children come to me because they're coming to me knowing exactly what they need. They're needy and they're dependent, and that's who the kingdom of God belongs to. You can't come to the kingdom of God proud. You can only come needy, humble, desperate for Jesus. See, we're needy because it's only through Jesus that we are worthy. That brings us to our final point this morning. I told you it's a shorter one. Less verses. I don't have as much to talk about. Verse 16, it reads this, and he took them up in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And so Jesus gets what he wants. And isn't that good news that Jesus gets what he wants? The disciples want to rebuke them and keep them away. Jesus wants them to come and they do in fact come. 
And they come to him and he touches them. He takes them up into his arms and he blesses them and he lays his hands on them. This laying on of hands all throughout the Old Testament and New is is a symbol of association. When we lay our hands on you, we are saying that you are with us and you are for us. It's even a symbol of authority. We can think when we laid hands on me as a church, we're saying, Josh, you're going to be our pastor. When we ordain other people, we're laying our hands on them and we're saying we are recognizing God's call in your life to serve in this kind of way. And Jesus is laying his hands on these children and he's pronouncing a blessing over them and he's touching them and he's getting close to them. And what we want to see is that all throughout Mark's gospel, this has been happening where Jesus is touching people. He isn't keeping them far away, but he's literally putting his hands on them and he's getting near them. And a lot of these people are unclean. So in the Old Testament law, what you see is if you touched something or someone who is considered unclean, what would then happen to you? You were then, what? Unclean. That uncleanliness of that thing would transfer to you, and then you would be declared unclean. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus that's been happening all throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus touches something that's unclean, and instead of him becoming unclean, they are being made clean, right? So you can think of like the leper who comes to Jesus early on in, in the Gospel of Mark, and he said, will you, will you heal me? And Jesus touches him in his leprosy. He should be unclean. And Jesus instead then tells him, he gets healed. He goes, now go present yourself where? Go present yourself to the priest so they might declare you clean. See, what should have made Jesus unclean, Jesus is different. Instead, he is making the unclean clean, In Mark uh, chapter 5, verses 21 through 42, we won't read it. I'll just kind of tell you the story. There is these two colliding stories that happen. And and we kind of get the first chunk, and then uh, the story gets interrupted, and then the story kind of continues. And it's it's the story of Jairus' daughter. And he is a synagogue leader, and he comes to Jesus because his daughter is really sick. He says, you got to come, you got to come heal her. you got to come heal my sick little girl. So Jesus determines to do that. And on his way to go heal the sick little girl, this woman who has a bleeding problem reaches out and touches Jesus. Now again, if we we know the Old Testament, one of the weird things that we don't really get is that when women are on their menstrual cycle and they are bleeding, they're considered unclean and they have to remove themselves from the temple for a period of time while that is happening so that they might be come back as being clean. Now this woman, because she has this bleeding problem on a regular basis, what that's saying is she's continually unclean. She's not able to enter in because she has this continual kind of problem. And if she touches you, she's supposed to make you unclean. But what happens is Jesus is walking and she touches him and Jesus feels her touch. He says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you? We're this giant crowd, everybody's touching you. And no, 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 somebody touched me and it's this woman and she knows it's her because when she touches him she's healed her bleeding problem goes away so when she touches jesus instead of making him unclean she makes him clean well then the story goes on and jesus continues to go to jairus's daughter but at this time jairus's daughter has died you know else is unclean in the old testament dead bodies when people die, their bodies are considered unclean. And when you would have to remove a body of a dead person, you would then have to do a certain amount of similar, uh, washings and things and wait a certain period of time before you could go back into the temple. And so here's this dead little girl. She now has an 
unclean, dead body. And Jesus tells everybody to leave except for a couple of disciples and her parents. And he goes in and the text tells us, and he takes hold of her hand. And he says to her, rise. And she rises from the dead. And it's this amazing thing as Jesus takes this, this dead little girl's hand, which should make him unclean, but instead he's announced as being clean. She raises from the dead and she's no longer unclean. And here's what you have happening at the end of this passage. Jesus took them in his arms, blessed them, and laying his hands on them. And he said this weird thing, that the kingdom of God, a kingdom, belongs to these nobodies, to these weakling little children. And the disciples are worried, it seems to me, about their status. See, they're worried and they're saying, Jesus... If you let these unworthy kids come to you, people are going to see that you're weak. And in your weakness, you're not going to look as worthy anymore. And because we're attached to you, we're not going to be seen as being worthy anymore. So get these kids out of here. And they're worried that their unworthiness is going to rub off on Jesus. But that isn't what happens. See, these little kids, they come and Jesus touches them and he blesses them and he lays his hands on them and he's saying, this is who the kingdom of God is for. He's declaring that a kingdom belongs to children who have nothing to bring. He's declaring that there is blessing for somebody who has nothing to bring to him, but he has everything to bring to them. See, his touch, his laying on of hands does not make these unworthiness rub off on him, but rather the worthiness of Jesus rubs off on these children. What we have to see from this passage is this not about us and what we bring to the table. It's about Jesus and what he brings to the table. He's the one who makes us worthy. And in fact, as we talk about that weird saying, what do I mean to belong, the kingdom of God belongs to you. What we want to see is that Jesus says that the word of God tells us that we will in fact reign with him one day. In 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, it says this, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. You can see there, right there in verse 12, that if we endure, if we live the life that God has called us to live, if we surrender ourselves to Jesus, we will reign with him. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be like a child. You've got to be dependent. You've got to see that I don't bring anything to the table. And what an important lesson for the disciples to learn See, the issue with this, I think, for us as Christians is we can say, yeah, I get that, but if we're not honest, the reality is you understand that, but you will forget that. There will be times in your life where you will forget what made you worthy to begin with. You will forget your humility that only is one through Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to see is we want to see that, that we have to be in a constant state of humbling ourselves because Jesus exalts the humble. Look at First Peter 5, 6. It says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you. We've got to get low 
so that Jesus will exalt us. We read that in our scripture reading this morning too from James chapter four. Humble yourselves so that God might exalt you. He exalts those who are humbled. See, if you've got a high view of yourself and a low view of God, you're in danger. Because God will humble you. If you are his, he will humble you. So get low, humble yourself. Why? Because Jesus exalts the humble. That's our application point. We need to know that Jesus exalts those who are humble. What this text is calling us to is to see first and foremost that Jesus loves the unworthy. He loves the sick. He loves the downtrodden. He loves the outcast. He loves sinners like me and you. And then we see that, we can say, oh, I am, I am dependent on you. I can't do anything on my own. There's nothing about me that you're looking and saying like, man, I've got to get that guy on my team. That's not how God looks at you. You're not a number one top recruit. You're a nobody. But God in his grace is going to make you somebody because he's doing it. He's doing the thing. And in that, you get to reign alongside him. Why? Because if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, at the due time, he will exalt you. That's the promise that Jesus is making. You see, Jesus has always been worthy, but he proves that worthiness and gets evidence of that worthiness by being humble to death and death on a cross. We are only made worthy if we humble ourselves to the rule and reign of Jesus. In the book of Revelation, and we'll close with this, there's this really cool scene going on and it's got all this stuff that's really confusing of like, I don't know, weird images of like incense being burned and things coming and like these super strange animals with heads and it's all weird. All around the throne of God. But what is really clear, what's really clear is there's these seals that are being broken and and even those are kind of weird. But the seals of what does that mean? What's happening? But they have to be broken so that Jesus can return. That's what we, that's what we know. That's what's being made very clear there. And John is watching this and he is weeping and he starts to weep. And what does he ask? He says, who can open, who's worthy to open the seal? Who's worthy to establish the kingdom? Who's worthy? And he's weeping because no one is found worthy. Nobody is found worthy. It's the song that we sang last week. If you should go read Revelation 4 and 5, that song like is word for word bringing out what's happening there and is asking that question, who is worthy? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? And then in Revelation 5, Verse 12, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What makes him worthy is the fact that he was slain. It was his humility unto death that makes him worthy. And so we cry out and we sing that song together and we say, Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? And there's this big triumphant sound. He is. He is, he is. And we sing that because it's walking through that drama in the scriptures of John weeping. Who is worthy to bring this kingdom? Who's worthy to set everything right? He is. Jesus is setting everything right. And it's all in his worthiness. And that's what this passage, this four little verses about children is teaching us. Is in order to be found worthy in the kingdom of God, It's very counterintuitive. You don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to do something great. This isn't some kind of uh, Greek mythology where to be like the gods and be amongst the gods, you gotta go and 
do some kind of amazing quest, but rather, so counterintuitive, it's saying, you gotta humble yourself. Are you humble? Do you know that you bring nothing to the table? Do you understand, God, I just desperately need you. Without you, Jesus, I would die. Because in a very literal way, that's true. Without Jesus, you will die for eternity. But with Jesus, you will gather with those people and sing, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the promise is is that you will be a co-heir with him. You will reign with him in new heaven, new earth for all eternity. That's the promise that the gospel brings. It's not for tidy, well-put-together people. It's for the broken, the sick, the sinner. I pray that we can be more like the Peter of, Mark, or of Luke 5, 8 and less like the one of 10, 13 through 16. That we would cry out, Oh, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then know that when we say something like that, Jesus will say the opposite. He'll take us like these children and he'll gather us up. And he brings us close in his embrace. And he blesses them and he lays his hands on them. We have those same kind of challenges in our life. Will we move to the people who are on the fringes, people whose lives are messy, who are difficult? Or do we say, ah, what about my neighbor? He's really well put together. He'd make a really good member of our church. Listen, nobody's really well put together. We're all broken. Redemption Hill Church exists to see people be redeemed. People who are far away from God being brought near to him by the death of his son. That's who we want to look at. That's who we want to see. Lord, how can I look and find people who know their desperation that I might preach good news to them They might come to know you. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a lesson that I think for many of us just seems very clear. It's not a hard thing to understand that we're not worthy of the God of the universe. It's not a hard thing to understand that You bring everything to this relationship and we just get carried along by your loving arms and your kindness. And while it's not maybe hard to understand and maybe it doesn't feel like new and new to us, I know in my life it's hard to remember. It's hard to live this way. And it's so easy to forget that I am not worthy on my own. I don't get to have a relationship with you because you're impressed with me. I get to have a relationship with you because you've called me your son. You love me. And in all of my baggage and unworthiness, when I come desperate and longing to you, you pronounce me worthy. Am I worthy of Jesus? Oh God, not on my own. I am a sinful man. But in Jesus, I am made worthy, and that is an amazing thing. It's such good news. Help live this good news. We ask this in your name.